Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The news over the last few hours, a $200 billion reduction of a trade surplus. Some China disputing reports this morning that it had offered to reduce its annual trade surplus with the United States by that number, with a foreign ministry official saying he was unaware of any such concession. Where does the $200 billion come from? Well, the reduction in the U.S. trade gap with China by 2020 was on a list of demands that the president's administration made earlier this month as Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin led a delegation to Beijing. So just where are we? Well, I'm really pleased to say that Barry Eichengreen, University of California Berkeley professor, joins us now, the author of his new book, The Populist Temptation, Economic Grievance and Political Reaction in the Modern Era, and joining us on his most recent Project Syndicate column as well, China and the Future of Democracy. Barry, where better to begin than with China? Let's just begin with the news if we can, and we'll work our way through some of the work you've been doing recently. How realistic is it to get this trade surplus down $200 billion? It's unrealistic, period. Um, I think uh, a a number like that may be attainable over a decade um, as a consequence of big changes in the structure of the Chinese economy and maybe some changes in the structure of the U.S. economy as well, but not as a matter of government fiat. If China were to take major steps to curtail its exports to the U.S., it would export more to other markets, say to Europe, and other countries in Asia would redirect their exports toward the United States. Even if you deal with the bilateral trade balance, you don't end up uh, solving the problem if you regard it as a problem of the overall U.S. trade deficit. The other big issues as well, Barry, on the list of demands that the United States has reportedly given to China, this might be the easier one, to get the uh, Chinese to agree to bring this surplus down over an agreed period of time. The more difficult one, perhaps, is to get the Chinese to stop subsidising the industries around the Made in China 2025 effort. How difficult will that be, Barry? I agree that uh, to focus on the trade deficit is to take our eyes off the more important issues. Yeah, I don't think that uh, China 2025 thing is a big or objectionable issue. Every country has an industrial policy and does things to try to develop its high-tech sectors. Where China violates international norms is in terms of yeah. intellectual property protections. And my worry is that if we focus on the headline trade deficit number and and uh, congratulate ourselves on our ability to export more motor vehicles to China, we lose sight of what really matters, which is yeah. intellectual property rights. Barry, the hallmark of your work in your books, from on golden fetters to globalizing capital in the many, many books that all of us have read. And of course, this book, folks, is an immediate... Uh, view of Book of the Year, this is on populism from Professor Eichengreen, is the old phrase OBE. Then we get to a point with all our good thinking where we're overcome by events. When you look at dollar strength, how close are we to being overcome by events? I think there is uh, obviously a tendency to uh, react uh, excessively. That's what financial markets do. They react excessively to news. 
So people are extrapolating the recent rise of the dollar into the future and, and imagining that it could proceed much uh, further. And that's part of the reason, I think, why emerging markets are having such a tough time at the moment. It could be that the dollar pauses and that gives Argentina time for example, to conclude its negotiations with the IMF. It gives Argentina time, but then you get knock-on effects. For example, John, I did a log in honor of Professor Ike Green. I did a semi-log chart of Brazilian real, yeah. which is curvilinear log, which means some acceleration back up to new Brazilian weakness. Is it a domino effect? Does it, does it go from Argentina or Turkey onto other things? Is, is that what we learned in Ecuador, Mexico, or Thailand? What we learned from, from that earlier experience is that investors can um, go to sleep for extended periods, and then something comes along to send them a wake-up call. So I don't think there is economic spillover from Argentina to, to Brazil, but there is a greater awareness all of a sudden that there's a, an election coming in Brazil later this year, and that could deliver the unexpected as it did in Italy. I look, uh, Barry, at the political maelstrom, and as we spoke on television this morning, I think our audience worldwide on radio wants to know what the backside of populism is. I mean, William Jennings Bryan was William Jennings Bryan, and then things changed. How do things change? Is it just economic growth solves populist fears of elites? Economic growth certainly helps. So the economy in the United States had turned around in 1895, a year before that historic McKinley-Bryan election. Prices had begun to rise rather than falling. So all that helped. That helped the farmers and, uh, and the workers. But the other thing that happened was an effort to address distributional concerns and to strengthen competition, antitrust policy to deal with the railway monopolies. And uh, it's not on, only growth, but it's also uh, economic and social policy more broadly. Then you have to ask the question, why are some countries better able to respond in that constructive manner? Whereas, in contrast, you saw in Italy and Germany in the 1920s, yeah. no, no response and uh, an even more extreme swing to the right. Have we had the populist shock yet, Barry? Have we actually seen that? And where have we seen it? Well, I think we have uh, seen it in the sense that there's been a profound disaffection toward mainstream political parties, uh, 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 criticism of, of, of the elites, uh, targeting immigrants, minorities, and others. And, and authoritarian tendencies. So if you ask me to define populism, I would say anti-elite, anti-authoritarian, uh, and anti-other, where other can mean uh, the wealthy bankers or, or, or foreigners, depending on whether no. you have right-wing or left-wing populism. So yes, we've seen it. We just don't know how it will end. Barry, congratulations on this effort, folks. I'll be direct. I've already downloaded it uh, to the old Kindle. I've got a big trip coming up, and it will be major airplane reading. Already a short list for Book of the Year, The Populist, Populist Temptation by Barry Eichengreen of the University of California at Berkeley. We greatly appreciate his attendance. Julia Coronado with us right now with Macropolicy as we look at 
of any number of themes. I think just because of time, Julie, I really want to focus in on the inflation dynamic. Mm -hmm. Is the Fed's measurement of inflation right now anywhere near accurate in the measurement of the inflation our viewers feel? Yes. I mean, I think that what they tend to look at is while they focus on core inflation as the underlying trend, they look at headline inflation. So right now we're seeing headline inflation perk up a bit on yeah. on higher gasoline and goods, prices. And goods is coming up as well as it was well, a deflation. Well, actually, you know, broader goods, core goods prices really aren't showing the strength okay. that they've been wanting to see. So we see things like auto prices coming down because auto the auto cycle is peaked and we're seeing auto demand come off. Auto prices are, you know, people have to offer discounts to get people to buy cars now. So broadly speaking, yeah. the inflation picture looks pretty benign. Uh, again, abstracting from what consumers right. are going to feel as a big hit from and, gas prices in the near term. Overnight, John Farrell, I bring this up because of Japan, where, I mean, I'm sorry, it right. was it was moldy nominal GDP, John, and, yeah. and, and moldy inflation as well in Japan. Julia, where's the credit picture in the United States now? The New York Fed coming out with their high frequency data the release mm -hmm. of the uh, the credit loans and and looking at the um the number of consumers inquiring about taking on more credit mm -hmm. within 6 months um, it's fallen to 5.65%. Right. It's very, very low. Yeah, so that reflects, again, the peaking of the auto cycle, less demand for autos, less need for loans for autos. In general, consumers have not shown a taste for re-leveraging. One, credit standards are still pretty tight. Uh, but in general, we really haven't seen that sort of rush to add on new obligations, even as the economy is better and the labor market heats up a bit. So people will be sort of wondering about that drop of 5.65% and wondering whether that's related to tax savings so they don't need to take on more credit. So is there an optimistic story there or is this one of pessimism? I mean, that's a that's a pretty high frequency read. I mean, I think um, most consumers did see a small bump in their paychecks, yeah. uh, but a lot of consumers are facing uncertainty because of higher state and local liabilities. So I think net net a lot of consumers are going to be really uncertain until they file their taxes next year about what the net effect of the tax cut is for them. So I wouldn't call this a tax story. I just think in general, if you look at debt to income, consumers have been cautious the entire cycle and there's no sign that that's about to fade. Are we make America great again? I mean, you've been more cautious and you, you know, you made your reputation on being right about a more a subtle and diminished GDP versus right. a consensus at the time. If we're not at a 3% run rate, where are we? Well, look, I think a lot of my view is is based in the demographics of our country and of the global economy. And so you've got a lot an older generation that is more focused on saving their gains. If, if equity prices go up, that's great. We'll spend a little, but we'll save more than we did in the past and, and, and focus on retirement. So I think that that's just a reality that we face. So I still think potential GDP growth is below two. We're running pretty strong right now. Um, that's creating good good labor market momentum. I think we can see that continue. But the underlying trend is is pretty pretty modest. Yeah. Where are you on 2019-2020? Oh, good question. Most people agree on 2018. We get close to a three-handle. It's what the government is looking for. The Economist surveyed by Bloomberg on the street. The median estimate this year, I believe, is 2.8%. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the high twos, seems to be the consensus view. That's the consensus view. The consensus breaks down significantly next year yeah. and the year after that. Yeah. What's your view? So, so not surprisingly, I'm on the more cautious side, partly because um, I think when we do tax, when we do fiscal stimulus, deficit financed 
fiscal stimulus at full employment, we are going to see margins of crowding out. Um, we're going to see higher interest rates, tighter financial yeah. conditions, perhaps wider trade deficit. Um, all of these things mean that the um, the, right. the, the pass-through to the domestic economy is not going to yeah. be as strong. Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Advisors, thank you so much. Thank you for wearing like an evening gown-type black <laughs> and gray. You, you and I My pleasure. I'm, I'm all amped up. For team coverage. I mean, I, I wore a tuxedo today for radio. It works on radio. It does. And you look elegant You look today. fabulous. Pharaoh, on the other hand... What do you have on, an AC Milan jersey over there? No, I, I also am well aware that you don't wear black to a wedding in the United Kingdom, Tom. It's for funerals. Oh, really? Oh, really? Please, protocol breath. You know, Tell no, us about no, this. No, no one of the European aristocracy would wear black to a wedding. Really? What do they no, wear? You would, you would wear a different color. Black of, gray, for a funeral. Perhaps gray. Really? You, you'll, struggle to find, you'll struggle to find many <clears throat> men in the city of London as well wearing black suits. Navy, do you know Navy, one of the Navy miracles? Blue. Navy do you know one of the miracles? Mm -hmm. Buried on the internet is the photo of me at my junior prom. That wasn't a black <laughs> tuxedo. <laughs> Let's get right to it. There's been a huge demand for foreign exchange analysis whether it's Barry Eichengreen in international economics or in the trenches of gazing at the Bloomberg. One M. McCormick, Mark McCormick, with uh, TD Securities, um, is very good at folding Bloomberg functionality into his reports. Mark, when you walk in in the morning, what's the first thing in the FX world you look at on your Bloomberg? So the, yeah, the first thing is always the WCRS function. So I look at WCRS, WEI, WB and just uh, the commodity function to kind of see what's going on across different asset classes. I look at WCRS and folks, this is a function I know John Farrell adores as well. And you can parse it into the different buckets of dollar dynamics against G7, against DXY, against emerging market, ADXY, blah, blah, blah. Which bucket is of most interest to TD Securities right now? Um, it's actually, so I do I do two different buckets. One's customized, where it's all G10, and then I do one that I frame out that's kind of global macro. So I throw in the major emerging markets that TD cover. So we'll, you know, we look at Turkey a little bit, South Africa, Brazil, uh, some of the LATAM, some of the major Asians. So come in and kind of look at what's going on in the G10, kind of get a sense of what's going on with the DXY, yeah. and then kind of pull it back out to what's going on in some of the major emerging markets after I look at my rate screen. You know, I've got it on the screen right now, Mark, and I've got the dollar as the base currency in my basket, just plain emerging markets. have set the time period to one month, and it is ugly. The Turkish lira down 10%, the Argentine peso down 17%, the Mexican peso down almost 9%, the Polish slotty has been hammered as well. Um, Mohamed Alarian, Bloomberg View columnist, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and of course, economic advisor to Allianz as well, talking about this trifecta of higher oil prices, stronger dollar, higher U.S. rates, injecting some poison into emerging markets. Just how brutal is it right now for EM, Mark? Yeah, this is a, this is a tricky time for EM because like, what you have is 
You've got tighter global financial conditions. So obviously you've got the U.S. rate story, which is very clear. We've seen the break of uh, 3% on the 10-year, which is causing some kind of global financing stress. You've got the, the move in LIBOR. So LIBOR OIS has been moving probably maybe on what people would look at as like technical reasons, maybe some refinancing of uh, the, the budgets and those kind of things, along with uh, some repatriation that's coming through uh, from the fiscal package. But the other side of it is you've got U.S. real rates are starting to move up. I think that's one thing that a lot of people kind of miss is that yeah. the U.S. real rate is the global plumbing of the financial markets. And so the U.S. 10-year real rate back, uh, is, is, is pretty close to 1%. So to me, what we're kind of really focused on is whether or not the U.S. yield curve is going to continue yeah. to steepen, whether U.S. real rates are going to break 1%. Right. And also the story behind the scenes is the ECB and the, uh, the BOJ are, are gradually normalizing policy when you look at the right. delta of their balance sheet. So you've got this really kind of toxic mix for emerging markets, right. which you have volatility, and you've got the end of easy money coming at the exact same time period. Mark, let's go uh, Canadian on you in the time we've got left. You're with Toronto Dominion Bank TD Securities. And is there a play in Looney right now, or is there a, pro- a play in a different Canadian pair where John can, you know, recover financially from his wedding gift to Megan and and uh, Henry? I mean, where, where's the place to who's, make— Who's, who's Henry? Who, who's, it's Henry, not—excuse me, folks. It's Henry, not Harry, okay? Mark, Mark, yeah. where can I make money in Canada? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting time because um, I think what people are usually focused on in Canada is they always look at oil prices and they always look at the kind of interest rate differential or terminal rate spread you get between the U.S. and uh, and Canada. What I think people are missing again in this story is that Canada is now becoming what we, we're calling a credit currency. And so you've got essentially um, – we're, we're in a world, as we just kind of mentioned here in emerging markets, where you've got uh, global tighter financial conditions. You've got a, what we'd call a regime change in, in financial system. Central banks are ending the easy money game. And, and Canada here is a country that sits with a very large current account deficit, 2.5% of GDP. It has not improved since the taper tantrum, which was one positive valuation signal he got from emerging markets, as they started to uh, reduce those external imbalances once the taper tantrum started in uh, 2012, 2013. But the concern for Canada is you have a country that hasn't really started to delever yet. You have a wholesale-funded banking system. You've got tighter financial conditions coming from the U.S., and that's being passed on to the Canadian consumer. And the big story here is that the, the Bank of Canada is already engineered an overshoot. Um, whether or not they call it temporary or, or whether it's tactical, yeah. they're going to overshoot their inflation target. <laughs> so you're going to have lower real rates in Canada. You're going to have a very large current account deficit. Okay. Got, did, you yeah. see, did you see John L. McCormick didn't answer the question? You give me an economic dissertation. I just want to know, John, where you can make money to make up for your wedding present yeah. to, to Henry. I guess he was trying to tell us. What do I do? Run Minby yet? I mean, do I do, do, I do Looney Yen? Do what's, I do, what's the know, trade Looney on the Looney, Looney Mark? Just give us That's the fair. trade. Uh, so uh, it, it's straight up. It's, uh, it's a buy dollar CAD dips trade on 126.50, but it's also a cross trade on uh, on a valuation basket. So we're looking at short CAD against Yen. We're looking at short CAD against Cable, there short CAD against uh, Euro. So essentially what we're trying to do is we'd want to be long all those current account surplus countries that we still see those currencies as being undervalued uh, over the next uh, 6 to 12 months, and we're short the Canadian dollar against them. So that's kind of the – you, you don't want to be traveling to Europe from Mark Canada this what year. what he's doing. We're just giving him a bit of a Listen hard to me. Time. McCormick was long the Winnipeg Jets. <laughs> Leave him alone. Mark, just quickly, you mentioned Canada has not delivered. We've all heard stories about the property market in Canada. We've all heard very ugly stories. 
where is it and where's it going in your mind? Where do you see things going? Well, I think things are still relatively positive. So there's, you know, you kind of have your sentiment based, you know, where should, you know, where, how do people feel about it and you know, how people feel with the common knowledge about the real estate market and whether or not they want to continue to kind of, uh, you know, buy into it. And there's also supply and demand. Uh, the supply and demand for kind of the real estate market is really driven by what's happening in Toronto, which is becoming a much more globalized city. And you're seeing a lot more immigration. You're seeing a lot more, uh, you know, pressure on the supply and demand story. It's kind of like, you know, where New York City was. 10, 15 years ago in terms of you have all these people coming in, you have these different industries changing, and the city is just not ready for it. So there, there is a natural pressure that prices do just have to, to kind of continue to rise. But the story is, is how much really is this impacted by the mobility of global capital and how much money is kind of coming in from other countries and uh, how much is that dislocating mm-hmm. the potential for people that can afford real estate versus kind right. of like how much is this an asset play. So I think the baseline here is that the, the, the market's cooling off, uh, but the yeah. market's pulling off at the exact same time that the consumers have just are, are right. basically just starting stage one of the leverage. So the domestic demand story is really kind of, I think, what is the major concern is that if the housing market and the consumer come off at the exact same time, there hasn't been anything else to kind of of hand over for the economy to continue to move. Mark, nobody cares. Jets or Vegas? Which one? Uh, I, I, I guess I'll just go Vegas. No, you, you work for TD Securities. You're supposed to I, say Jets. I stopped watching sports after the Raptors, uh, after okay. they got swept by the, by the Cavs. They did. I know. It, it's, it's therapy uh, <laughs> as well. Okay, Mark McCormick, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with TD Securities. That was brilliant. Nice summary there of Canada. Tim Fox and I on a Friday with John Tucker, and we're sitting around anxiously deciding which champagne to buy for the royal wedding. And Campbell's falls apart, so we're able to go out and get Scott Mushkin. He's with Wolf for years with DLJ and Kidder Peabody's, won every award out there. He was so good, the Wall Street Journal in their beauty contest a couple years ago actually retired him. He's not retired. He's with Wolf where he's, he has seen the Durant's family struggle for years. Scott, um, 19, uh, rather 2008, 10 years ago, Campbell's Soup with a moldy 5.1% total return. And the two-minute drill is they're not getting it done. From their annual report of 10 years ago, at Campbell, we believe the key to sustainable success more than ever is on core strengths, major trends, and outstanding opportunities worldwide. Isn't this about nobody wants to buy a can of Campbell's tomato soup? Yeah, hey, first of all, Pam and Tom, thanks thanks for having me. But, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the soup category actually grew this year, um, believe it or not. It, uh, it was a cold winter, so soup grew. So, you know, <clears throat> one of the things going on here is just flat-out mismanagement of Campbell's. Um, now, there's unprecedented change afflicting the food at home space. Yes. Um, and there's certainly that headwind and very disturbing coming off that conference call with them talking about not being able to get pricing through. And what is that is? That, that's Bentonville. That's Walmart. Walmart saying, no way, guys. You know, we're, we got a plan and we're keeping prices low. And so aluminum's right. up, steel's up. You're not getting pricing. But go ahead. Scott, I had a slide rule. When people were talking about this good family 
this steward of Campbell's Soup should sell the company. Is that same conversation going on today? I mean, I think you got to look at Campbell's, and they talked about a strategic review. And, you know, from our perspective, $10 billion in revenue going against, you know, guys like Kroger and Walmart, you know, the scale is just not there. Uh, and clearly the operating acumen is not there. And so I think, you know, the family should think about it. Uh, I think Kraft Heinz makes a lot of sense, honestly, and we've talked about that and even in writing, like, I don't think they have the scale to do it. I think there's unprecedented change coming at this industry, uh, food at home industry, and the people need to bulk up, and not only uh, retailers, but I think these manufacturers have to think about coming together. All right, so Scott Mushkin, let's say that they're thinking about coming together. You mentioned uh, Kraft Heinz. Is that the only one? I mean, I think that in our opinion, it seems it seems somewhat logical. Um, there's obviously long-term investors in in Kraft Heinz, uh, 3G, and and, and uh, Berkshire Hathaway. So if the Doran family wants to do it, they you know that it makes sense uh, there. But I mean, as they said, everything's on the table, and it's always tough to speculate. But uh, it makes a lot of sense. They fit nicely together. How long can they keep doing this? Campbell's. Yeah. I mean, I you know I think the market's telling us that you know that they're they're tired of of what Campbell's has been doing over the last ten years, um, and the challenge is, and we saw you know Kroger partnering with Ocado yesterday. Um, the industry is is it's tell Tom about more that. Tell, hang on a second. Tell people yeah. tell tell people about and Tom about this this deal uh, because this is interesting. What Kroger did with Ocado, it's licensing some technology that is already being uh, tested and used uh, in France and also in Canada. Yeah, and then of course over in, in the UK. So I mean the. You know, Ocado basically is an automated system to bring uh, online groceries to your home. Um, and uh, Kroger has licensed that technology. It's been pretty successful over in the U.K., and as you mentioned, they're now uh, spreading their wings into other markets. Um, but the net of it is, and this is the challenge, is Kroger's agreed to build 20 uh, warehouses, distribution centers. That's all extra capacity. Um, Funny enough, the birth rate came out yesterday, I think, from the CDC, and it was the lowest it's been since 1987. So the challenge with the industry is it's not growing all that fast. Populations at 50 bips, you know, food at home may not even be growing 50 bips. And so when Kroger announces they're going to build 20 fulfillment centers, you know, it almost gives me heart palpitations. I'm like, more capacity into an overcapacity industry, uh, not to mention what Amazon's doing with Whole Foods. So, you know, they got to play. The, right. the industry's changing, but man, it is tough out there. It's tough out there. And with your experience, Scott Mushkin, it's just simple. It all gets worked out. You know, the five-year plan becomes a three-year plan. I think everybody can basically stay. Campbell's has been a modest train wreck for a number of years for whatever reasons and all that. Every other industry's rolling up, essentially. Look at media just as one example. When does the food frenzy start and they all merge? You know, it should, in our opinion, it should, I mean, it's it started to a degree. I mean, obviously, Campbell's bought bought uh, bought Lance, but um, it needs to happen at a much more rapid pace. I mean, we would have thought, and we've wrongly thought over the last six months, it would have sped up. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, even on the retail side, there's this kind of like almost overconfidence um, that things will be okay. It's all going to work itself out. We've seen you know bad trends before, but. You know, in our opinion, that's 
that's the wrong thought to have, yeah, that you, you really need to partner and partner quickly. Yeah, Pim, very quickly, Kraft Heinz uh, employment, 39,000, Campbell Soup, half as much, 18,000. That gives you the scale. Size. Yeah, well, I, Scott, I just wanted to know if that is uh, if that sort of underscores the, um, I guess, the scorecard that you've got. You covered 23 companies officially. Mm-hmm. You've got 13 holds and 10 buys. That's not a big bull endorsement for the sector, is it? Yeah, and, and you know, you know, we we've known each other for years, and you know, one of the things that you know I think I got wrong, honestly, over the last six months. So we were very bearish on the food at home sector with a lot of sales. Uh, with tax reform, we believe nominal growth in the U.S. would accelerate, which is actually happening. Uh, we thought the inflation rate would rise. That's happening. Generally, that becomes a much more productive environment for the food at home sector, uh, realizing there's unprecedented change. But right now, what we're seeing is that this idea of nominal growth helping the sector, it's just not, it's not coming through. Yeah. Um, the unprecedented pressures are winning the day. Well, let's be constructive here. You've been kind to of come out on short notice, Scott Mushkin. What is natural grocers? Oh, natural grocers? Oh, it's a it's a small regional chain selling uh, natural organic food out of uh, so it's located out of Denver. It's got stores kind of in the middle of the country. I mean, your your performance in that you're killing it on natural grocers. It means it's been. Why is that a moonshot versus everybody else troubled? So, so I think you know one of the things we see in the food at home industry is well, first of all, geography matters, right? So they're located in Denver. They have a lot of stores in the oil. Uh, market which is rallying uh, mm-hmm. uh, huge, and so they're they're getting a, a big economic benefit. But we see as you as you get up into the National Organic Channel, it does respond to a a better economy, a more robust economy. Yeah. And so nat- natural grocers. So I think that's factor number one. Factor number two is, you know, there's just not a lot of liquidity in that stock, and so I think that you know when it, it can it can overshoot and undershoot you know, just because of the liquidity factors but okay. you know definitely their business has improved markedly because of what's going on in the macro industry in macro economy scott mushkin really appreciate this on short notice with wolf research scott mushkin on campbell's soup as well thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.